Thanks so much again for listening. I just thought I'd squeeze out a bonus episode just for some fun and as some brain distraction for the stupid lockdown we're possibly going into in Melbourne. Fucking shit. And thanks to everyone who listened to last week's bass intros episode. It's had more downloads in the first three days than any other episode. So a big thanks to everyone who's listened to it and everyone who shared it. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The more I dig in and listen to some of these great records from my past, the more I find that some of the simple moments are the most memorable and often the best. I do love layered, textured and deeply clever arrangements too, but sometimes a single simple moment is what is required. The last bonus episode was all about my favourite Ringo Starr moments and I added paperback writer for the hi-hat work in the verse, but Ringo also has a great bass drum and snare idea to kick off the guitar riff. Check it out here. This got me thinking about some songs that halve this and just use a single magical snare drum to majestically introduce a part. Bonus episode five, single snare. This one was a ridiculously tough one to research as it was all from my diminishing brain because I can't just pull out a record, read a back cover for ideas or Google search songs with a single snare. So my original idea of a full episode were crushed pretty quickly but I was surprised with the quality of the seven or eight monster tunes that use a single and welcoming snare, often on the four of the preceding bar of an intro, but sometimes in the middle of the song. So I'm gonna start with a song I've proclaimed to be my favorite song from Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, which is Rocket Queen. The whole drum part and bass part to the song was a huge part of my love for it. Check out the Golden Magic tab on my website, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, to see Steven Adler playing the song in a studio in 2015 and he still definitely has his groove after suffering a drug-related stroke way back in 1996. Here's Stephen Adler talking about that time. It's kind of amazing that all you guys are still alive. I mean, you've had, yeah. you know, all your issues. Uh, Slash has got a pacemaker. Uh, Which is a shocker thing. Um, <laughs> Duff's spleen blew up. Yep. Uh, Izzy's had his, you know, his issues. OGs Don't know anything about Axel. Don't know. Axel, he's had his, his his downfalls too. Everybody did. Axel wasn't really the big drug addict. He was more working on his own, you know, Axelness. Axelness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. His own Axel. But you know, we all party like that. But I party harder than that, and it, it affected me differently. You know, I thought. For 20 years, I was blaming, the, you know, Slash and Axel and Duff and Izzy for letting me down. But really, see, after I got to do this book and worked with, like, Dr. Drew and mm -hmm. all that, they didn't let me down. I let them down. But again, you're in this bubble, right? And, you know, you come from the streets, you sell a record. How many copies is Appetite like, I don't know, 100 million worldwide. Whatever, it's huge. Yeah. So, you know, money was never a problem or should have never been a problem after should've a while. Never been. Every, you were you were super famous. You were living the dream, and you could do whatever you want. And nobody was there to tell you no. No, except for the band. They ended up having to tell me no, but I took it too far. Believe it or not. See, here, okay. It's very difficult to kill yourself. It's much easier to cripple yourself. And I was crippling myself. I couldn't. You know, when it came time to recording, I was too high. You know, because it's it's the drums. The golden rule of drums are to keep the hands clapping and the feet tapping. And if I'm messing that up, I'm letting them down. But I didn't think of it then. I didn't see it. I wish I would have saw it because I had an opportunity to either straighten myself up or keep, continue to try and killing myself. And I'm like, 
I was in a big fog, and, and instead of going the right way, the proper way, which was taking care of myself again and getting back in the band, I went off the deep end. And that deep end lasted? 20 years. Yeah. Because you read, the, again, you go with the book. Yeah. <laughs> the first half of the book's full of dates, full of events, yeah. full of specific things. But then the other half of the book is like, uh, then I got high, then I got high, then I got high, and then I went to the hospital, and then I got high. Yeah. I mean, that I read that last night and it was, oh my God. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's very difficult to kill yourself. I was telling you earlier, I, I took, last time I had a, a decent eight hour sleep, I took 100 Valium, I drank a big bottle of Jägermeister, and I shot up three fourths of a gram of heroin. It was the last time I slept for eight hours. But I don't care, I'm happy now. Okay, so I'd rather sleep one hour and be happy than eight and be miserable. So the, the, the slide's over. What stopped it? I mean, that was a, that's not, not just a slide, that's a lifestyle. I was getting, I was, I, I was sick of getting motion mixed with progress. Okay. I don't know if I said that right. Yeah, motion mixed with progress. There was, nothing was happening in my life. I just, it was, it was constant, you know, wake up in the, or come to in the morning, you see the drug dealer, and then, and then get the drugs, and worry about, you know, getting the money, worry about meeting, it was just a pain in the ass. And then Dr. Drew came into my life and said, you know, I, I have an opportunity for you to straighten up and, and start doing something with your life again. And the first season he asked me to do it, I wasn't ready. I wasn't done beating myself up. So then he called me a year later and he says, how are you feeling? I said, I feel different about it. I'd like to give it a shot, but to do, the, to do it at the best of my ability and get the most out of it, I said, I think I need to, to talk with Slash because you know we have so much history, just me and him so no cameras, nothing. And I got to just personally apologize to him for blaming him for everything that's, mm. that's bad that's happened to me in the last 20 years. And when, after I did it, the next morning I woke up and my chest and arms were so sore. You know, like when you work out too much, because I got it off my chest. And I was able to move on with it. And it, it still took a lot of work, but getting that out of my system and, and apologizing to him. So I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to carry on that burden, that emotional burden for all it's, those years. It's very painful. Did you know you had the burden? Or? No, of course not, because I kept doing the drugs to stuff it down. Right. And I was just getting tired of all the, the hospitals and the jails, institutions, and oh yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I, I only, only, and not say like only thing, but excuse me, I had a mild stroke, I had a mild heart attack. I'm thankful I still have coordination in mm. my arms and legs to be able to play still. So I've talked Can't to- Can't talk for beans, but I can still rock on those drums. <laughs> Here's one great snare to open up the episode and to open up Rocket Queen by Guns N' Roses.
The next single snare song is most likely the first rock song to have an F-bomb in the lyrics and also printed in the album notes. This song's from a hugely influential but still cult band, MC5. Here's the drummer, Dennis Thompson, talking about the song. Hi, my name is Machine Gun Thompson and I am the drummer from the MC5. The MC5 originally stood for the Motor City 5. One day we were just a garage band, the next day we're in the uh, we're on the cover of uh, the Rolling Stone. We are in uh, Jazz and Pop, Cosmopolitan, Playboy magazine. Just one minute we're nobodies from Lincoln Park, the next minute we're worldwide phenomena. You're listening to a man who has been through the wars, and I've got the battle scars in my heart and my emotions to prove it. Anything you want to do in this country, you can do, but it does take hard work, and there's plenty of adversity, and there's plenty of lies and confusion and subterfuge and crooked politicians and crooked lawyers, but none of that should get in your way. But you can make it as perfect as you can in your own work, in your own life, if you choose to work hard. We were under the microscope for two years. Our first record rose to number 30, number 29 in the national charts, and the single went to number two and number one in many cities in the Midwest. I had a hard time getting to number one because of the MF. Mother Superior, kick out the James Mother Superior, and I'm keeping this uh, R-rated folks because I prefer to do that. Uh, The reason we said the word MF was a rallying cry, it was not swearing for swearing's sake, we were the first band ever to say one of those words in liner notes and on a live record. Janis Joplin played at the Grandy, and uh, we were sitting out there watching the uh, her band rehearse one day <clears throat> before uh, the show. They were doing sound check and going over a new song they had written. I forget the name of the song, but guitar player Sam was having a problem with the bridge coming into the bridge, and so we're all the five of us are sitting back in chairs and just sort of like catcalling and, uh, and hooting and hollering and. Being uh, hecklers out there, they kept, they kept stopping the song at the point where Sam would make a, make his mistakes, and Janice uh, would yell at him, uh, scream at him is a better word, and we're all laughing in the background, saying, "Hey, kick out the jams or get off the stage! Kick out the jams or get off the stage!" Which is our flagship song on the first record, and we're, we are known for the word, the, the phrase, "kick out the jams," because. Uh, what it actually means was what I just said, and that is if you are fortunate enough to be on a stage and to play music in front of people, you should uh, pour your heart into it. You should do all that you can. You should assume uh, an artist's responsibility and to say something and go beyond just being entertainers, try and give people something they can take home with them in their daily lives. And so Kick Out the Jams was a sort of a rallying cry or a war call, <clears throat> if you would, um, to rally people around uh, support for the changes that were happening in the early, in the late 60s. Now, the band originally felt we were uh, 
three to three to two on this as far as a democratic vote was concerned. We, two of us, namely Fred Smith and myself, decided uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to put the MF on the record because it would cause exactly what it did cause. Uh, it would cause a problem with sales. It would cause a problem in the community. Um, but we went ahead. We were overruled. We went out with the uh, our original version. Clowns. Uh, we could have played a more polished version of what we were doing versus the energy of the audience and us was a magical thing. It really was. So here's the single snare intro and F-bomb glory of 1969's Kick Out The Jams by MC5. Rage Against the Machine covered Kick Out the Jams on their covers record called Renegades, and they kept the single snare, and here's a snippet. Rage Against the Machine's most well-known song has a single snare to kick off the groove, and here's the groove of Brad Wilk's drum solo for Killing in the Name Of. Let's cover a couple of mid-song single snare examples. Here's Jackson Brown and Don Henley talking about the song. Take It Easy is a song that I started to write and Glenn finished. He had the four great singers, this huge bank of voices that could come in, and he had that to work with. And when they worked out the song, it suddenly had this, you know, take it easy, take it easy. You know, we had this, you know this arrangement sense that was just so great. He wrote the song and had become disenchanted with it and had sort of put it aside, put it on the shelf. And Glenn Fry, <clears throat> uh, who was a very astute arranger and, uh, 
and, and a, a, a student of songwriting r recognized that there was something in that song that was perhaps better than Jackson had had imagined and, and encouraged Jackson to get it off the shelf. He said, let me know when it's done. I, well, he called me like two weeks later and said, is it done? I said, well, I yeah, I'm still working on my record, you know, but I'll, I'm going to do it, you know. So then he called me, then he waited about a month and he called me and he says, is it done? <laughs> I said, no. He said, you want me to, you want me to finish it? And I went, no, I, I can finish it. I'll, I'll do it. Jackson ended up letting Glenn actually finish it. He came up with this great flatbed Ford thing, you know. I mean, that's, that's, that's like a real, you know, that's a transformation made right there. I mean, I dug the fact that all these, these women in Arizona were driving trucks appealed to me. But it's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford, you know. Here's a single snare that ushers in the banjo magic on the outro of Take It Easy by the Eagles. Me. A minute or so ago we heard Jackson Brown talking about how Glenn Frey had great backing singers in the Eagles and I actually found a recording of the band practicing the backing vocals for Take It Easy. So good, check it out here. is also the first note of the song but I'm going to add it here as the intro of the outro if you know what I mean and here's the surviving doors talking about the tune Jim was the writer he's the guy who had the songs and you know I hadn't I didn't really think about writing but uh, then Jim said hey you know what we don't have enough songs you know why don't you all guys go and try and write some too you know so basically what Robbie had was kind of a more of more of a folk song than it turned into. It goes into the door's communal mind and Densmore says, let's put a Latin beat to it, man. Like this. And how do we start the song? We can't just because that's like the that's the riff of the song. And I don't know, out of the, you know, the better angels of my unconscious mind came. And then uh, everybody. Jim came up with the second verse about the funeral pyre. And uh, I said, Jim, why is it always death? Why do you always have to do that? And he said, no, man, this is perfect. You know, you got, you know, you got the love part of it and then we'll have the death part and uh, he was right that song really had it the thing going against it it was over six minutes long dave diamond local dj said man i am getting requests for light my fire i play it because i got the diamond mine late at night i can play a long version but you guys got to cut that thing down and make a single i'm telling you it's a hit the boys didn't want to cut it <laughs> 
uh, I said, well, look, let's just let Paul see what he can come up with. And guys, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and we won't do it. And we said, no, we can't do that, you know. That's our favorite song. We can't cut it down. But finally we did. And that was, uh, then all hell broke loose after that. I remember being in New York in a limousine going to a concert. Light My Fire was just breaking, and it must be played every three minutes, four minutes of one song, then another song, and then Light My Fire again. And we were just in the limo, and our smiles were so big. We were so happy. It just dripped out of the radio. The Beatles were saying, all you need is love. Morrison's going, light my fire, honey. There's a big difference. It's love, but it's a different kind of love. Then they go on Ed Sullivan. The Ed Sullivan show was where the Beatles first appeared. Ed Sullivan was watched by families on Sunday night. Suddenly, little Sally is up on all fours, leaning in, looking at the lizard king, you know. And daddy's looking down going, oh, oh no, we can't have this. We cannot have this. And the moment daddy said, we cannot have this, she was out buying every Doors album you could possibly imagine. Of course, we uh, didn't do what they told us. They didn't want us to say, girl, you couldn't get much higher. <laughs> Jim did it anyway, and then they said, You're, you'll never do this show again. And, and we said, well, we just did it. We only wanted to do it once. Cheers. Light My Fire hit number one in late July of 1967. I think in, it's more in retrospect that it is seen now as like a perfect song for that summer, for that time, because things were beginning to... Uh, glow and, 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 and ignite and explode in terms of the social changes, the political changes in the country. Light my fire by the doors. You know that it would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire Come on, baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire The time to hesitate is through The time to wallow in the mire Try now, we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre And here's that memorable snare to intro the outro. Salt and Swing, why did you guys have to re-record that song? We got hauled into the to the managing director's uh, office in London. It's funny, very funny, really, because uh, Ken Malifant, the guy's name was, and it was in the days when 
managing directors weren't accountants. They were music fans as well. Hey, boys, he said, I think it's like, I love the album, love the album, you know, from Scotland. I, I think it's great, it's great. It's just that uh, I think you should really recut Sultans and make it harder, make it harder, you know. And, uh, uh, and then we could, on the back of that, we can sell lots of albums. And it goes back to that thing we were talking about. They were having problems shifting to the album in, in England because they wouldn't play on the radio. So here's the funny thing. Uh, it came out to Tipple. He played a different song. <laughs> and uh, and the, the A&R guy said, that's, that's not Sultans of Swing. Ah, oh, just testing, boys, just testing. But he thought that... Uh, he just thought that we had to, you know, it, 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 he wanted this single to go on the radio and they weren't playing it because, you know, but it's, 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 it's part of a whole different element of the problem was that, as I said before, the, the, it was too wordy. It was too long for the radio format that, or the climate of the radio format in England at that time. So that was why he tried that. And uh, I don't think it worked really, but you know, because we were given uh, a mission to 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 make it a different different cut of the same song. You know, we weren't trying to play the same song better. We were trying to make it harder, maybe faster, more rocky. I don't know uh, what it was. Uh, it is the shoes again. You know, he didn't like the shoes, but he couldn't tell you what shoes he wanted. That was Dire Straits drummer and star of episode nine's Name Changes, Pick Withers, talking about the song that he kicks off with a glorious single snare, Sultans of Swing. And I'm going to use the demo version, which also has the single snare intro. of a snare on the floor of the count-in bar to an intro of a song is John Mayer's Vultures. Yeah. 
Another nice example of a snare on the intro is John Coogan Mellencamp's Check It Out. Hi, Carolyn Helvin here with the Top 20 Countdown. John Cougar Mellencamp's Lonesome Jubilee Tour is in Australia right now. John and the band will return to the U.S. at the end of May for another string of American shows. Fans and critics agree that John puts on a great concert. He says a lot of that just comes from experience. I made my first record when I was 22 years old, I'm 36. And I've, uh, you know, we're getting kind of, we're kind of getting kind of good at it, you know. After this many years, you kind of, when you book in a tour, uh, you kind of get a good idea of what's going on. One album is like this. Uh, there were, you know, when I first started out, it was, uh, did you ever see Spinal Tap where the guys are walking trying to get to the stage? Well, we were like that, you know, like, where now is the stage at? And it used to be that way. I think, I think it's good all bands have to start out that way. Our number five video gives you an idea of what to expect from a John Cougar Mellencamp show. Here's Check It Out. It's up one slot from last week. And here's the single snared intro to Check It Out. Check It Out. Face it, getting personal never hurt a record sales. If anything, it's the opposite. This song, written by Sting after the breakup of his first marriage, is one of the biggest ballads ever. It's played on the radio all the time. It's probably being played right now. I got a certificate a few years ago for that song from American Radio, and it had been played 10 million times. Right, this was years, this is 10 years ago, so God knows how many times it's been played. Let's say 20. Add up 20 million four minutes, and you probably get something like, I don't know, 20, 20 years of continuous airplay. Actually, Sting, your sums are way off. The real figure is nearer 150 years of continuous play. Every time a song is played on the radio, it earns a royalty, which is split between writer and publisher. On Radio 2, that can be up to £66 a go. If a track is played a lot, it can end up paying your pension, and even your children's pension. The French call them gold songs. All that means is that they're, they're worth a lot of money, <laughs> basically. I think it's, it's my most successful song, and probably better known than any, any others. Uh, and yet it's not in the least bit original. It... Uh, you know, it it's, has a standard chord sequence, which is probably nicked off um, Stand By Me. Every breath you 
a bond to break Or a step you take I'll be watching you Every single day So it's not, it's not original. The, the lyrics you could get from a rhyming dictionary, you know, make, take, fake, wake. And yet it has something about it that people respond to. And that it seems at first like a very romantic, kind of seductive song, which is what I initially intended it to be. But then when you listen to it, you realize there's a compulsion behind it to the point of obsession where it, it becomes quite sinister. Every vow you break. All the time I get people write and let it say, oh, it's our favorite song, it was played at our wedding. And I, you know. And I never contradict people about what the meaning of a song is. I think it's whatever it means to you, it means that's what the meaning is. But for me, it has this, this double-edged thing. And uh, it's, I think it's pretty powerful. You know, it's still, still what people want to hear. It's all about stalking someone, isn't it? It's all about, I'll be watching you. That's the key line, isn't it? When you have songs where the line repeats and one word is different that you you like the ear likes that because you, you're thinking oh what's he going to rhyme it with what's where's he going to go with it next it leads you along when there's when there's repetition like that that's very um that's a good trick not that he <laughs> not that he was thinking it was a trick sometimes I sp i'll spend months and months on a song making it very technical musically and technical lyrically and uh i don't get anywhere sometimes the simplest song is the best being simple is not easy, though. <laughs> that was Sting talking about the police's biggest hit, which won two Grammys for Song of the Year and Best Pop Performance. In 1983, was number one in the UK for four weeks and number one in the US for eight weeks in 1983 and was also the best-selling worldwide single in 1983, Every Breath You Take by The Police. And it starts with a single snare.
a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs And of course, with great hit, there's great shit. Track seven on the great Rival Sons album, Head Down, is called All The Way, and it starts with every drum, like this. When I was young, sometimes I'd be a bad boy. My pop would sit me down, he put his belt back on tight, he say apologize to your sister, treat the by the very next track called The Heist, Mike Miley joins our single snare club. used back in episode 5's Colours of the Mexican Flag has a famous 5-4 intro, then a single snare to kick the verse off. Here's poet and songwriter Pete Brown talking about how the song came about. Jack had more or less the music for White Room and we tried a few different ideas of lyrics and none of them worked. You know. And then I thought about this poem that I had and it was an eight-page poem and I thought, okay, well, if I cut that down to one page, it might be the right thing for it. I didn't live anywhere for a while before I started. While I was beginning to write songs, I was semi-homeless. Anyway, I finally found a white room in, in a, in, in a uh, flat. Um, and 
So I was in the white room. I had nothing, there was nothing in there except the bed and, and a chair. I mean, and that's where uh, I stopped. I got straight. I, I stopped drinking and taking drugs and everything. I got straight. Uh, and beginning to be a songwriter rather than just an itinerant poet. The song is about that turning point. And here's the single snare of White Room by Cream. In the white room with black curtains near the station Black roof country, no gold payments, tired starling Dark eye, dark light smile on you leaving my contentment. I'll wait in this place where the stars never shine. Wait in this place where the Track three of Green Day's breakthrough album, Dookie, starts with a single snare, but ends with loads of snares and a free time crazy ending that ultimately runs into the famous drum intro of Longview. Here's that ending. Here's the single snare intro of Chump by Green Day. first sound heard on Midnight Oil's third album, Place Without a Postcard, is the single snare intro of Don't Wanna Be The One. I'm an inner 
slip my stand up, caught in the path, waving at the back while the copper and attack assaults the senses with relentless seeds of passion and delight. I cut up all the options and we're running for my life. I don't wanna be the one. So in my opinion, the coolest single snare ever hit has to be this one. Rage Against the Machine, Bulls on Parade. When you want to rock hard, children, lean on F sharp. much for listening again please rate and review share and subscribe to the podcast if you're digging it follow me on instagram a rock and roll rabbit hole.com or don't i'll still be back next week with another full episode i'm not sure any of that shit makes a difference anyway but i do appreciate you all enjoy your lockdown if you're in melbourne see you next week fuck Who's that? Who's that?